It's a program with a long name, Community Development Block Grant Disaster Recovery and Mitigation. It entails a lot of money from housing and urban development grants, $82 billion over 10 years. But the HUD Office of Inspector General has found some oversight challenges in preventing duplication of benefits. Here with the details, Deputy IG Stephen Begg. Mr. Begg, good to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. And just give us the outlines of how this program works, what the money goes to and what its purposes are. The program is uh, designed to provide grant funding to state and local governments to address unmet disaster recovery needs. So HUD's program works in concert with other federal programs, and it's designed to come um, after other programs have provided assistance to states and localities uh, dealing with the aftermath of disasters. And it's really designed to be a supplemental or gap-filling program for long-term recovery needs. So this is not just 8A housing or HUD overseen housing, but anything housing-related in a given area that might need recovery funds? The block grant structure is very broad, and so it can be used for a wide range of activities. It can go towards repairing or rehabilitating homes that were damaged. It can be used for new construction, and it can also be used for home buyer or renter assistance for those who are looking for relocation services in the aftermath of a disaster. It can be used for many things, and it's designed to be flexible so that the communities can really tailor their programs to meet their local needs. So what you were looking at was whether HUD oversees the program with an eye toward preventing duplication of efforts, because when it comes to disaster recovery, there's probably 10 federal programs besides this one flowing to those states, plus the state's own programs. That's right. We think on the federal side, it's upwards of 30 programs that are working in concert. And in the housing space, some of the primary players that HUD deals with are the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, and the Small Business Administration. And so, as I mentioned, HUD's funding comes in after those have taken place. And so what we're looking at here is um, how HUD works with its grantees to make sure that if they're using HUD funds for activities, that's not a duplication of something that FEMA or SBA has already funded. Right. So if 10 bay windows were blown out, you don't want to pay for 30 new bay windows. Correct. Putting it in simple terms. And so what you found is that HUD was okay in overseeing the initial recipient of the grant, which is the state or local government, but not the details of what comes next when they reallocate the money. Is that a fair way to put it? You know, I would say that what we have identified as an opportunity for HUD to enhance its oversight is the timing of when they're working with grantees on establishing sufficient procedures to prevent the duplication of benefits. And so in terms of the way the grant rolls out, HUD is asking, or HUD is required actually by federal law to certify that before it gives grant money to an entity that it has sufficient procedures in place to prevent that duplication. That happens very early on in the process. So we see it about 60 days after HUD announces a grant is going to a state or a locality, that state has to provide documentation about its duplication of benefits procedures, what they'll do to prevent it. HUD then has to certify that's sufficient uh, in its eyes to, to authorize giving them grant money. What ends up happening, though, is that at that point in time, the grantees haven't fully fleshed out the programs that they'll operate. So they don't know the details of their rehabilitation or their construction or their home buyer assistance programs. So it's hard to have specifics on how you'll prevent that duplication if you don't know exactly what you're going to do. So HUD ends up certifying a high-level approach, a policy-level approach of saying we will, we will prevent duplications generally. But then what we would like to see and what, what we recommended HUD do is 
make sure that before the grantees start providing assistance to applicants, so before a renter comes and says, I need rental assistance, that that duplication of benefits process is in place, they've assessed it, and they believe it's adequate to prevent any duplication. It sounds like these things really need to be in place before a disaster occurs, because then you get into that situation where the government wants to get money out fast, and we're learning, like in pandemic relief, charitably, 20% of the money was waste, fraud, and abuse, probably half of it, but that's what you want to prevent. Ideally, it would be great if duplication of benefits procedures were standardized across this disaster recovery programmatic landscape. HUD's unique in that way in the sense that their program is not authorized by federal law permanently. And so there isn't a regulatory framework for how disaster recovery funds flow through HUD's programs. What that means is that Congress appropriates funds for this program on a disaster-specific basis. And then HUD, in turn, creates program requirements through federal register notices. And so the requirements can change uh, for each one. And there's a lack of standardization on some of the the duplication of benefits side over the course of time. That being said, HUD has taken a lot of proactive steps to consolidate some of the guidance, to streamline it, provide additional training and resources to its grantees. And we think they've gone about as far as they can go without Congress stepping in and permanently authorizing a structure so that they can create standard regulations around this. We are speaking with Stephen Begg. He is Deputy Inspector General at Housing and Urban Development. That's an interesting point. Without a standard, long-term, permanent authorization, then the agency and any agency is constrained by how much regulation it can bring to a program. So it kind of does it ad hoc every time Congress authorizes funds. It's like a temporary authorization, in effect. That's right. And, and what we've seen over the course of time is that HUD's program requirements – will change over the course of each of those temporary authorizations. That can create confusion for grantees. Some grantees in Texas, for example, are administering grants that cover disasters in multiple years uh, over the course of a large period of time. And if you have to navigate multiple sets of requirements for multiple disasters, it can become quite confusing, even for experienced grantees. Well, if you have a disaster that takes place in, say, September, it could be till February of the next calendar year before roofs start being repaired and this kind of thing. So you almost need a multi-year approach, it sounds like. Absolutely. You know, what we have said over the course of time, and the Government Accountability Office has said as well, and HUD recognizes, is that without a permanent structure and without a regulatory framework that grantees can rely on and plan to in advance, it really delays the funding reaching the local level. So the communities and the individuals in need wait longer because we're restarting the program and standing it up each time. Grantees can't plan their activities until they know what the requirements will be. And if HUD doesn't have requirements in place until after the money comes, you know, it just really frustrates the timing. Well, I mean, they could look at it like someone who makes a smoothie every morning. There's no recipe, but you have pre-measured amounts of this, that, and the other that goes into it. Couldn't they just pull some regulations or some rules off the shelf when there is appropriations following a disaster, and then those are ready to roll when Congress, if it should authorize this program permanently? That's a great point, and, and HUD has really uh, leaned into that type of thinking, Tom. They've developed what's called a consolidated notice where they are trying to pull those those standard or repeat-type requirements and put them in one place that can be referenced for future disasters. It's a little surprising that this hasn't come higher in Congress's kind of estimation given all this concern about 
the seeming level of disasters that are happening more and more frequently, more and more people affected, more housing is flooded or burned, you know, now, and uh, outside of your scope to tell Congress what to do. But has this been raised to Congress, to your knowledge? Uh, absolutely. Our agency has testified on it numerous times. I've testified personally a few times on it. GAO has testified on it many times. And we've actually reported in our semi-annual report to Congress as a legislative recommendation that Congress take up permanent authorization because, in our view, the department has done almost everything in its control to advance this type of consistent framework. And so we're at the point where the only real source of finalization here is congressional action. In fairness to our stakeholders on the Hill, bills have been introduced many, many times. It just hasn't passed Yeah, I would think there would also be pressure, I'm presuming, from at the state level to their individual delegations to maybe take this up because housing becomes more acute as a attention grabber the closer you get to the local level. That's right. One thing about the block grant program, though, is that it offers a wide range of flexibilities to states, which they enjoy and they want. And so in some ways, everyone is trying to strike a balance between creating that flexibility and creating the standardization so that the timing of the funding getting out gets better over time. The consistency and accountability is there to make sure it gets spent correctly. But then the states and localities have the flexibility to meet their local needs that they know best. In the meantime, you do have recommendations for HUD, though, since you can't recommend to Congress in this context. What are your chief recommendations? And does HUD sounds like they agree with them? We worked closely with HUD to craft recommendations that are workable for them. And and what we focused on here is making sure that HUD can provide more detailed guidance to grantees on how to develop duplication of benefits procedures. So as they're working in the early days, HUD can give them more guidance and assistance on putting things in place from the start. And then our other two recommendations centered around making sure that HUD has a process for evaluating those duplication of benefits procedures before the grantees start providing money at the ground level. We really feel like it's important that that's in place before the money goes out rather than having it come in place as the money's going out. By the way, is there any evidence that duplicative benefits have gone out in any circumstances? Absolutely. The GAO recently published a report where they did a study and put together all of the sources of funding that are available in a disaster recovery scenario. And and they identified several instances in where there's evidence of potential duplication of benefits across HUD, FEMA, SBA, and then the National Flood Insurance Program. So there's absolutely evidence out there that it, that it does happen. Um, the scope and magnitude of it is something that is hard to quantify. Sure. And by the way, it is illegal for someone who is a recipient of these funds to take money from several programs for the same purpose. Absolutely. And, you know, it it can range from accidental or an an oversight in the way that the program is being administered to an individual or an entity purposefully seeking duplicative benefits, which would be fraud. Stephen Begg is Deputy Inspector General at Housing and Urban Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. 
Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. 
So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.